0: We are certainly blessed to be together this morning with one another and before God's presence and to know that He welcomes the worship of His faithful children, welcomes us to be gathered around His throne. That is amazing to me that our Creator would thus welcome us before His throne. I hope that our study today will be interesting to you. I hope it will be helpful to you. That is my sincere hope and prayer and desire. If you're visiting today, I want to especially welcome you and thank you for the attention I'm confident you'll give to our study. I want to talk about something this morning that it's a very passionate subject with me and that is the existence of God. It is obvious that our society is becoming increasingly secular and increasingly hostile to the existence of God. My lifetime, uh, the window of my lifetime has seen a lot of changes, and there are some here this morning who've seen even more dramatic changes than I have seen, and many of those changes are not for the good. I began school in the late 1960s. I'm 49 years old, so that that gives you an idea of where I fit on, on on the century scale, and God was just a part of our everyday thought and talk. We prayed in the classroom. I'm not saying that that's what our school should have done. I'm just telling you that's what we did. We read the Bible in the classroom. That was very common. Our teachers frequently mentioned God and our responsibility to be good citizens and good kids and do the right thing because that's what God expected us. That was just what we did. There was nobody that I went to school with that hadn't heard of Jesus or didn't know a little bit about what he did and that sort of thing. They might have different beliefs about some of the particulars, but they knew about Jesus, the Son of God, and believed that. And that is not how it is today. My wife's a school teacher. I think a lot of you know that. There are some here who are in the educational system in different parts of it or have been they have told my wife, don't talk about God. I didn't say she's honored that request, but they've told her that. Then that's common. You don't talk about God. He's been forbidden in schools. God, it's just about as bad to bring God to school as it is to bring a gun to school. (laughs) I'm not trying to sound silly. I mean, it's literally looked on that way by a lot of people. There have been children in our school systems in the United States that's been expelled from school for privately, silently to themselves praying a meal, or praying over a meal at lunchtime or bringing your Bible and quietly reading it on their own. That's happened. It's been a total change. And married to that is this idea that, that, that there's no God and we need to get rid of this idea and our society will be a better society if we'll get rid of this notion of there being a God. And I want to suggest in our study this morning that that is false. That when we remove God from the equation that not only does society fail to get better, but society does exactly what our society is doing and rapidly spirals down out of control. Because I believe our very moral values hinge on the existence of God. And I'm going to suggest to you today that you can't be an atheist and effectively argue for there being moral standards. And I want to be clear right up front that I'm not saying there's no such thing as a moral atheist because. When you discuss this issue as it relates to atheism, atheists will angrily insist, well, you can be an atheist and still be a moral person. And many atheists are more moral than many Christians. And I'm not discussing that at all. I know there are a lot of atheists who believe in morality. What I'm trying to say is there's no logical basis for that. That if there is no God, there's no real basis for morality. I want to start out and illustrate this concept by telling you the story about a place called liberal Missouri. The story of how this town was founded is a rather interesting story. There was a man by the name of George Walser who started this town in 1880. Mr. Walser was a member of a society that was a liberal society, and don't, don't think of our modern term of Political liberalism, but it was liberal in the sense of the way they define it in the day. They they believed they were free thinkers. You were free to think and believe, and they were atheists, adamantly so. And Mr. Walser had as his goal to establish a town where there would be only atheists and no Christians. These free thinkers wanted to have a town where you were not free to think that there is a God. That's how free they were about their thinking. You weren't free to think that Jesus is the Son of God. You weren't free to think we ought to go to church. You weren't free to think that uh, we have moral obligation before our Creator. That's what these free thinkers thought. They believed that they could have a town and remove God from the equation, but it'd still be a moral town of moral people with moral values. Mr. Walser was trying to demonstrate to the world of his day, that you don't need God to believe in morality. He said this town should have neither God, hell, church, nor saloon. That was his idea, his dream of what was ideal for a place to live. 1880. Five years later, things had gone in the tank. And liberal Missouri was in a downward spiral. And a fellow by the name of Braden or, or Clark Braden. Wrote an editorial in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch and he described the current state of liberal Missouri. He described it as a place that was rife with drunkenness, rebellious youth, profanity, slander, infidelity, abortion, prostitution, and corruption. He described it in his editorial as a town that was spiraling out of control morally and it was a corrupt place. He said there were many who had sold out lock, stock, and barrel to move there and be a part of this exciting eighth Uh, experiment, but they wanted to flee, but they couldn't sell because nobody wanted to live there, and so they were financially ruined by this great atheist experiment that was set out to prove you could have a moral standard without a God to be the father of that moral standard. Well, when Mr. Braden wrote that editorial about the experiment perpetuated by these free thinkers, he didn't stop to think that these free thinkers didn't think he was free to think that. Yes, I'm making fun of the notion that they're free thinkers because they weren't. Because they had Mr. Braden arrested. Days later, he was arrested for criminal libel and tried for daring to write that liberal Missouri had all these things going on. And so he was brought to trial. And the jury ruled no cause for action without even hearing from the defense. That tells you how ridiculous the charges were. And he was freed. Well, one of the honorable and moral citizens of this great moral atheist experience was a fellow by the name of S.C. Thayer, and he wasn't very happy with the outcome of this trial. So Mr. Thayer filed civil suit. It seems that Mr. Thayer owned a hotel in town. That hotel was actually a brothel. It wasn't a hotel, it was a brothel. And he was concerned that this negative portrayal of liberal Missouri would hurt his business. And so as a business owner, he thought he should file suit against Mr. Braden for how dare you write these unflattering things about our town. His case was so weak that days later he dismissed it himself at his own cost. And never even went to court. Today, liberal Missouri is a normal town. Of normal modern people, some are church going people, some are not. The atheist experiment failed. In fact, it proceeded to demonstrate what Christianity has argued all along. When you remove God, you remove the basis for morality. You might want to have morals, but there's no one to say this is right and this is wrong. It's all just going to be based on human opinion. Well when it's all governed by human opinion it's not going to be long before you have a bunch of hotels (laughs) and a bunch of drunks and people are going to say what they want and treat each other the way they want and it's morally going to spiral out of control. The Bible says in Psalms 14 in verse 1, the fool has said in his heart there is no God, they are corrupt, They uh, they have done abominable works, there is none that doeth good. This passage makes a connection between the denial of God and the corruption of man. The fool that has said there is no God is somebody who is corrupt. That means he wants to do what he wants to do. And I believe that is a fundamental motivator behind the denial of God. Because if there's no God creator, that means I'm my own God and right and wrong is what I say is right and wrong. And that's what's insinuated or at least implied here in this statement here in Psalms 14 about the person who says there's no God. Now I don't want to get into a discussion this morning of the existence of whether or not there's God. That, that's a different subject for a different time. What I want to talk about is the fruit of saying there's no God. That if there is no God, there is no morals. And I intend to demonstrate that this morning. Of course, we'll have quotes from Scripture. That's important for any study of Scriptures to actually cite the Scriptures. But I recognize that to somebody that wants to deny the existence of God, they wouldn't assign any credibility to the Scriptures that I might cite. So also I want to cite what well-known atheists and humanists have said or agnostics have said about the matter. And so I'll have many other quotes that are from people who have been atheists or agnostic and see what they have said about God and morals in order to be fair in the discussion of the matter. If there is no God, all life is the same. If we did not get here by fiat creation, but instead we got here by a process of evolution, here's the truth of the matter. There's no difference between a human or an animal or an insect. There's no moral difference between somebody walking in here with a gun and mowing us all down, or somebody going elk hunting in Colorado this weekend, or somebody swatting a fly because it's getting on their nerves. Because a human is just another life that's a result of the product of evolution, and there's no real difference between that human life, or the life of an animal, or the life of an insect, or the life of an amoeba, or a bacteria, or a virus. That's just how it is. And somebody said, Well, no, no, human life is, is more uh, precious and more valuable. You don't have to believe in God to believe that. Really? Why? Who said that? Oh, you think that's the case? Well, what about the other guy that thinks that you can't eat beef because it's just as wrong to kill a cow as it is to kill your neighbor? Well, that guy thinks he's on moral high ground because he's not going to kill a human or kill a cow, but he'll go kill a carrot. <laughs> to have soup. So what if somebody comes along and says, well, vegetables are just another life along the evolutionary tree, so it's wrong to kill them too. We can't eat anything. Well, the lions and the tigers and bears in the land of Oz never got that message because they're out there killing each other to eat, but somehow we can't. All this animal rights, that's all. I'm bringing these things up to stir up the notion. You see what moral confusion you have when you remove God from the equation? Robert Riley said, human life is sacred only if there is a God to sanctify it. Otherwise, man is just another collection of atoms and can be treated as such. Now let's stick a straw in this and sip on it for a while. See what we can get out of this deal. Let's think about what Mr. Riley is saying. If there's no God that created you and said, you're special above the rest of creation, you're just another result of evolution. You don't have this spiritual being about you that's this unique thing that lives after the body dies. When you die, you're like the dog rover. You're dead all over, and that's just it. In fact, you're really nothing more than just molecules in motion. So don't cry when mama died. That's just molecules in motion before, and it's still just molecules in motion. They're just moving a little different now. In all those years you were interacting with her, that wasn't a mother's love. That's just mass, matter, moving in obedience to the laws of physics, natural law. There's nothing special going on there. Everything, every time she baked you a pie or saved you the last piece of cake, that wasn't the love of a human entity that has a part of them that lives and loves outside the physical realm That was just like a planet orbiting its sun. It's just matter in motion. We're just a collection of atoms and can be treated as such. So the next time you open up your newspaper and read about somebody that's walked onto a school campus and killed a bunch of their schoolmates, don't be alarmed. That was just atoms and motions being treated as such. That's the moral consequence of saying there's no God to be the author of moral standards. Excuse me, Simon Edward said, If life has evolved by chance alone, then no creature is qualitatively different from any other. If it is morally reprehensible to kill a man, then it is equally odious to kill our brother, the chim- uh, chimpanzee. By the same token, how can we kill cows for food or dogs or mice for research and mosquitoes. Now, when I said that while ago about somebody walks in and kills us, somebody goes elk hunting, or somebody swats a fly, you might have thought, "Well, that's kind of ridiculous." Atheists don't believe that. Well, I know some atheists don't, but why not? This guy has looked at it and said, "Well, there's no God that says your life's any more important than a dog's life. You're just a different type of evolved creature, or for that matter, a mosquito." So, swat a mosquito, kill your baby, it's all the same. Look at the evolutionary tree. You've got different kinds of life animal life, plant life, human life. That's, who is that? That's Charles Darwin up there, and there's his monkey cousin. But there's a lizard, and there's the elephant. What's the difference? Who's to say that this type of life is any more important than that fish or the squid down there? If somebody was to step in and murder Charles Darwin while well, they'd squeal like a pig under a gate, what a tragedy. Really? Why is that any more tra- tragedy than somebody killing a tick when they pick it off after going deer hunting? It's just another type of life at another point on the same evolutionary tree. If there is no God, all life is the same and there's no moral foundation. There's no God to define what what is right or wrong and there's no Genesis to be the foundation of our moral beliefs. And here's what I mean by that. There are some who want to compromise with the evolutionary atheists and say, well, okay, there is a God, but we'll say that evolution is the way He brought us about and we're going to deny the first 11 chapters of Genesis. This is the point of view of different types of what they call theistic evolution. I don't want to get into a detailed discussion of theistic evolution. Again, that's another discussion for another day. But for today, I just want to talk about the moral consequences of that point of view. I want to suggest to you that when you remove the first 11 chapters of Genesis and say they're really not true, they're just an allegory, you're not just removing a chunk of human history, you're removing the foundation of every moral principle we hold dear It has the same net effect of removing God from the equation. And I hope that will become evident as we continue to study. Jeffrey Dahmer said it like this. If you don't think that there is a God to be accountable to, then what's the point of trying to modify your behavior to keep it within acceptable ranges? That's how I thought anyway. I always believed that the theory of evolution is truth that we all just came from the slime, when you died, you know, that's, that was it. There was nothing. Now, in case you're not familiar with who Jeffrey Dahmer was, he's dead now, but Jeffrey Dahmer was a man who was a, uh, an infamous mass murderer, and not only that, but he was a cannibal, and I'm just going to leave it at that. There's a lot more that could be said about his behavior, and it's very disgusting. You might or might not know that Mr. Dahmer converted to Christianity while in prison. Whether or not his conversion was genuine is between him and God. I'm just telling you that's what is reported to have happened. And with that he looked back on his life and his choices to love his neighbor with a little ketchup, if I could put it crudely, because morally what's the difference between that and the Christian ethic to love your neighbor? There's no God to say which is the right way to go. And somebody says, well, that's disgusting. Well, somebody else says, that's delicious. Who's to say who's right? There's no God. Mr. Dahmer told the truth about it. If there's no God that we're answerable to, then there's nobody to say, well, you can't do that. Somebody says, oh, yes, there is. Society will define right and wrong. Well, if that's the case, then what about a society that says, it's okay to kill your neighbor, cook him, and eat him? Societies have done that before. If we're going to say there's no God to determine right and wrong, that we're all going to get together and determine right and wrong, that means that might makes right, and we're forced to accept when a society collectively decides to do things that we would regard as evil. And again, that leaves us in a moral tailspin. Edward Simon said, I don't claim that Darwin and his theory of evolution brought on the Holocaust, but I cannot deny that the theory of evolution and the atheism it engendered led to the moral climate that made a Holocaust possible, referring to what happened in Nazi Germany. Viktor Frankl, who was a Holocaust survivor and a very famous agnostic said, The gas chambers of Auschwitz were the ultimate consequences of the theory that man is nothing but the product of hereditary, heredity and environment, or as the Nazis like to say, of blood and soil. You know what the Nazis did? They looked at a human and said it's just a collection of atoms and can be treated as such. How do you like that? How does that make you feel? Does that make your blood boil a little bit? If it doesn't, it should. But if we're going to say society is going to determine right from wrong, then Nazi society was within its rights to do what they did to all their helpless victims. It was just like swatting a fly or going bird hunting. It's just another piece of matter that's moving within the governance of the laws of physics. It's just moving in a more animated way that we've labeled as life. But it's just molecules in motion. If there is no God, you take away the moral foundation. That's the fruit. That's what happens. What happens to our family values I believe our family values are rooted in the factual truth of Genesis. In Genesis 2 and 24 says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and there shall be one flesh. That is the seminal beginnings of family. And attached with this are all kinds of responsibilities related to the family. But a man and a wife would love one another, that they would care for their children, that the children would love and respect their parents and all these different things we think of as family values, they all find their root in the Genesis story that tells us of the beginning of family. Here's what Aldous Huxley said. And let me take a minute to tell you who Aldous Huxley is. He is the offspring of a man who was Darwin's bulldog. Darwin had this buddy named Huxley that w- was a kind of a mouthpiece for his point of view and was very vocally favorable to the view of evolution. And his offspring, Aldous Huxley, followed in, in suit. He said, we objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. Here's what Mr. Huxley was saying. We didn't like the Judeo-Christian moral ethic rooted in the Genesis story because that meant we had to be true to our wives. We couldn't go run around like a bunch of monkeys cheating on each other. So we chose to believe that we come from monkeys instead of we come from God. I'll put that in terms we can understand. Barbara Burke said, among some animal species then, infant killing appears to be a natural practice. Could it be natural for humans too, a trait inherited from our primate ancestors? Let's think about that for a while. I look at Genesis, I see family values, I see morals, I see parents uh, bringing about children and having a duty towards those children. An atheist, Barbara Burke, looks at a pool of slime that engendered the one cell animal that engendered something else that eventually evolved into us. And you know, I remember when I was growing up, we had a, for a very short time, a Siamese cat that was, I'm sorry, it was Bobtail Cat. The <laughs> Bobtail cat was a sinister beast. I mean, he was a killing machine. That's why we owned him. There was another cat that lived on the place and she had a bunch of babies. And Of course, you know how boys are. All this kind of stuff is cool to us. This bobtail cat followed that mama cat around consuming her young. We thought that was the coolest thing there ever was. That's how it is in the animal world. That made that cat a hero. Now, when he started killing mama's birds, that made that cat wake up dead one day, but... As long as you're killing other kittens, nobody had a problem with that. That's just animals. That's the animal world. Life's cruel. Survival of the fittest. (laughs) It's kind of cool when it's a yard cat. But when it's somebody that wants to abort a baby, how do you think about that? Well, I guess the atheist would say abortion is a right. You know, the animals, they kill their young. Why can't we Am I the only one that can see the next logical step is not aborting an unborn child, but killing a born child? I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one here that's figured out that's what's coming next. Cats do it. Why can't we? Well, society has determined, not every society, some societies have said that's just fine. And some people have decided that's just fine. So we open up the paper and we read about a teen mother as an unwanted child that says... I think I'll lay this baby in a dumpster and let the ants eat it alive. Survival of the fittest. Really. How about morals and family values that are rooted in the truth of Genesis and the reality of God? Let's talk about the work ethic. If there's no God, what happens to the work ethic? Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. First thing God did with Adam was give him a job. I guess it's good for us. We may not always like it, but he wanted Adam to work, tend to the garden, take care of things. After sin came along, work became more difficult. But work was always there <clears throat> because... God said to Adam, Because thou hast hearkened to the voice of thy wife and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. And the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread. You work just God harder. The truth and the reality of the work ethic is rooted in the Genesis story that our Creator expects us to work. And the difficulty and the perplexities of work and the problems that come with our jobs, that's all part of that sin curse, and it all it's explained all in Genesis. How does it make you feel when you encounter somebody that doesn't treasure this? I was raised in a family that's probably a little bit like the family that raised most of you. You had two choices: you could believe in and love the work ethic or you could die. Well, That's a little overstated, but my parents believed in work. And they did whatever was necessary to enforce that belief. That's become, you know, I didn't like that when I was seven years old or when I was four years old or when I was 10 years old or whatever and had chores. But I've come to really treasure that. And I'm pretty sure you feel that way too, you're hardworking people. I'll tell you about an old boy that showed up at church here several months ago. He showed up like this. He wanted some money. He wasn't hungry. He wasn't naked. He he just wanted some money. I asked him, well, where do you work? He said, I don't don't work. I don't have the patience for that. I don't don't know how that makes you feel. That crawled all over me. He thought we ought to have the patience to work. And set aside our money to hand it to him, but he didn't need to have the patience to work. So I proceeded to give him a very interesting lecture about what the Bible says about work, and trust me, it was riveting. He said, I didn't come here to get a sermon on work. I said, Come again, if I'm here, you're going to get another one. I don't believe in that. I believe in the biblical work ethic that says if a man won't work, neither should he eat. I believe that, and I know you do if you believe the Bible. If that man had been destitute and helpless and tried to help himself as couldn't, we'd have all dug our wallets out and everything else. But that wasn't his problem. His problem was he just didn't believe he ought to have to work. But he thought you ought to have to work so he could eat. Give me a pain I can't locate. You know that? What if a man doesn't want to care for his aged parents? You know, that's part of the work ethic. Mom was getting old and feeble and heart disease was getting the best of her. My brothers and I, we were constantly conferring with each other at the holidays and on the phone together. What can we do to, you know, make mom's day easier? What, is, what does she need? Jim was the point man. He was there living in the same town with her. We're always, well, what does she need? What does she want? What can we do? It was important to us, just like it's important to you. We felt a duty. We felt an obligation. There's a lady in my home congregation there at Lubbock that you talk to her about her duty to care for her aged marriage, uh, or aged mother, excuse me. She'll get mad as a wet hen. It's not a duty. It's a privilege. Don't you dare tell me that's a chore. I like to do it. That's how she believes in that work ethic. I've got an obligation. Well, what about somebody that looks at their parents that can't take care of themselves because they're old and feeble and sick and that? it's just atoms in motion and can be treated as such. Animals neglect their aged parents and walk off and leave them to die all the time. Why shouldn't I? I just evolved like those animals that evolved. What, what difference does it make? Well, if there is no God, that's where we're at. What if a woman doesn't want to clean and feed her baby? I'm tired. Child crying in the night because they're soiled and they're hungry and they're sick and they're lonely and they're cold. That's not my problem. Survival of the fittest. What about that old boy that expected you to provide for him while he enjoyed a life of leisure because he just didn't have the patience to work? i got to get off that subject. That's wearing me out. These things mean something to us. But when you remove God from the equation, you remove the foundation that says we're obligated to work. We're obligated to care for one another, to be generous and give and help the helpless. All those things crumble. You take away God in Genesis. What about the issue of modesty? Genesis 3 and 7, after they partook of the forbidden fruit, it says the eyes of them both were open. They knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. I saw a Fox News headline the other day on their web page, and I clicked over and read a little bit about it, and it was talking about this actress describing how totally embarrassed she was and how hard it was to get over the embarrassment of doing some nude scene she had done in some movie. I wonder why she felt that way. Could it be that her ancestor Eve took a bite of a fruit that woke up the reality, you know, this ain't right. And people have to work to try to sear their conscience over to get past that. We believe in the principle of, of people being properly clothed. You know, passages like 1 Timothy 2 that talk about modest apparel. You read in that context, you'll read about what Eve did. Our belief and in, in value in this modesty principle, it's all rooted in the truth of Genesis and in the existence of God. Well, what happens when you remove that from the equation? If there's no divine rule, well, there's no problem with being immodestly dressed. You can't tell me that's wrong. There's no God that's defined what is or isn't right, or that we should or shouldn't be modest, or that that matters at all. So who are you to say that it's wrong to be immodest? <clears throat> well, if immodest apparel doesn't matter, then apparel doesn't matter. So someone comes along and says, What about pornography? I think it's kind of interesting. When you read an atheist in an article trying to argue against pornography. (laughs) How's he going to say or how's she going to say that that's not right? Well, it's demeaning to women. I know that. God knows that. But she's just atoms in motion and can be treated as such. Animals don't care about that sort of thing. I was amazed... When I was reading a, a sociological article that was trying to discuss human behavior in, in, in misconduct, when you know, a man physically or sexually assaults a woman and why that happens, and the wherefores and the why nots of all that, and I was amazed that, well, he said, really, what we're getting that from our ape-like ancestors, you know, So, But it's still wrong. Now, when animals do it, it's just survival of the fittest. But when we do it, it's still wrong. Well, I believe it's wrong because of what God teaches and what's rooted in the book of Genesis. You remove divine rule, along comes immodesty. And if there's no God that says that wrong, then where's the right and wrong that says pornography is wrong? And somebody says, well, maybe it's not. Well, okay. What about when they take it out in public? Somebody was telling me the other day about making a trip to the West Coast to take care of some family business while they were out there. They're cruising along one of those towns out there and they look over there and there it's just shining like new money. Naked as a jaybird. They got a little upset. They felt like somebody was forcing their beliefs on them. <laughs> Put your clothes on. That's what we're all thinking. Well, why? There's no God that says they ought to do that. What about child pornography? Oh, now everybody's hair is standing up. They've got some sort of legal age limit in this country on on, on the pornography issue. Is it 21? Is it 18? I'm not sure. I'm not interested. Let's just say it's 18. If you're 18 or older, it's legal. What if the girl is 17? Well, that's wrong. Who said so? There's no God. Now God would wind you back around the clock and say she doesn't need to even be immodest. It doesn't matter her, you know whether she's 17 or 18. But you take God, you take Genesis out of the equation, you remove the foundation. Somebody says, well, okay, 17. Well, what about 16? What about 13? What about 12? How long before you get sick at the stomach and say something went wrong? And then out, from the crowd steps that little quote that says it's just a collection of atoms and can be treated as such. If that means that somebody can abort their unborn baby, why did not it mean that that same person could abuse their born baby? You can inject them with toxins and slice them to ribbons when they're not born, why couldn't you do something else after they are born? When you remove God from the equation, you open the proverbial Pandora's box of moral disgrace. And we're surprised when the newspaper tells us about all these strange things that are going on around our country. What about human dignity? Can I just tell you that I, I really try hard not to preach angrily. My wife always warns me that I come across that way, and I'm sorry. But with each passing issue, I'm just getting a little more angry. And I'm going to tell you this one boils my blood, and it's going to boil yours. You're going to be offended before we're done with this section, and you won't be offended at me. You'll be offended at the same fools I'm offended at the fool that said in his heart, There is no God. What does the Bible say about human dignity? In Genesis 11, verse 1, verse 7 and 8, the earth was of one language and one speech. Then verse 7, go to, let us go down therefore and and there compound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Where do all these different nationalities and different shapes and shades and sizes of people come from? When I open my Bible, I say we all come from the Tower of Babel. We're all ultimately descendants of Noah and then Adam. People talk about racial issues, in my mind, there is only one race, the human race. And the reason I believe that is because that's what the Bible teaches. Acts 17 and 26 says that God hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth and hath determined the times before appointed the bounds of their habitation. That sort of goes back to the Tower of Babel there. And it says there are different nationalities and different types and looks and colors of people because God divided us into different nations. There are not different races. We're all one race, the human race. And somebody who wants to be racially prejudiced supposedly in the name of Christ cannot with credibility do so because the book that Christ authored, the Bible, teaches we aren't different races. We're all of the human race. We're all descendants of our Creator through Adam and through Noah. And from Noah's descendants there at the Tower of Babel, you have the different nations. Some are darker in color, some are medium in color, some are lighter in color, and all these shades and size and shapes in between. Well, what about evolution? I'm going to reveal some things to you about the theory of evolution in its seminal stages that you are not going to read in the high school science book. In fact, you're probably not going to read it in the college biology book. So stay tuned. Acts 10 and 34, Peter opened his mouth and said, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. God doesn't care how dark or light your skin is or what your physical features are like in terms of any kind of so-called racial designation. But when the theory of evolution was being popularized in the 19th century, a lot of its proponents didn't feel that way. Thomas Henry Huxley, Darwin's bulldog. Said, no rational man cognizant of the facts believes that the average Negro is the equal, still less the superior, of the white man. How does that make you feel? Here's what he was saying, and here's what evolutionists believe. Here's what those guys believed that there were some races of humans that were closer to our ape-like ancestors. And the lighter you were, the more evolved and refined you were. How does that make you feel? Henry Fairfield Osborne said, the negroid stock is even more ancient than the Caucasian and the Mongolian, as may be proved by an examination not only of the brain, the hair, the bodily characters, the instincts, the intelligence. Are you mad yet? The God I serve created Adam and genetics and through those genetics come Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives and the national diversity that we see today. And they all come from one man created by one God. But the 19th century atheist said, well, the tree of evolution sums a little higher than others. I know that if you brought this up with an atheist today, they'd be outraged and say they were products of their time and some Christians are atheists or or racist rather and and go on and on and on. But I'm I'm just going to ask you this question. If there's no God and Genesis 11 isn't true, then who's to say that this is wrong? On what basis are we going to argue that this is immoral? Because I'm going to tell you something. I believe what Huxley and Osborne said are inherently immoral and ungodly. Don't you? But I just said the key when I said ungodly. What if there is no God? Put a rope around his neck and hang him, swat a fly, shoot an elk, butcher a pig, it's all the same. After all, It's just atoms in motion and can be stinking treated as such. Welcome to atheist ethics, so-called. No wonder liberal Missouri failed in five years with such godless, godless ethics as this. The evolutionist says there's these animal ancestors, and in its root thinking, these different nationalities are different races that represent different levels of evolving. I'm going to show you another quote. At some future period not very distant as measured by centuries, the civilized races of man will almost certainly exterminate and replace the savage races Throughout the world. Who do you suppose said that? Well, let's mainly leaf through the history book and think. Exterminate. Exterminate. That's a strong word. They call it genocide today. What did Hitler call it? The final solution? Was that what he called it? When he decided there was one particular race within the confines of German society that was substantially less evolved and substantially more savage than the rest, he decided that one of the answers to Germany's problems was to exterminate these people. So what do you think? you think Hitler said that? Or do you think Charles Darwin said that? I'll tell you what, the next time a biology professor tells you what a great thinker Charles Darwin was, you just remember this quote, from the corrupt, godless mind of Charles Darwin. Not very long in the future, they're going to start exterminating these savage races. About a hundred years later, Here comes strutting along like a banty rooster. Adolf Hitler saying, you know, Darwin was right. We have work to do. That's morally disgusting. And that's the fruit of what happens when you remove God from the equation. But thank God, just because somebody believes he doesn't exist, isn't going to make him vanish. He's still there still defining what's right and wrong and still giving us hope that you're more than just meaningless matter moving in motion with the laws of physics. He shows us in Genesis 3 and verse 6 the root of sin. When Eve took the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also to her husband with her and he did eat. He shows us in Romans 5 and verse 12 that by one man sin entered the world and death by sin and so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. He shows us the origin of the evil within us and He shows us that it's vast among us. And He shows us hope in Christ. When he said, for uh, since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. The same God that inspired the first 11 chapters of Genesis that tells me where my evil comes from is the same God that says his son is also historically true right along beside Adam to cure the problem that Adam initiated. The same God that gives me hope in Christ Jesus. Thank God we don't have to have this meaningless, moralist existence. Thank God we have hope in Christ. I wonder if you he- have seized that hope in your life. And I wonder if you have Christ as your hope. If you have not yet done that, I want to give you the opportunity today to own Christ as your Savior and the blessed hope that only He can supply. Rise up from the moral mayhem and the utter hopelessness of atheism and seize the eternal prize that Christ offers. If we can assist you in that today, we want to do so. Please come. Have a seat on the front pew while we stand and while we sing.